Well, let's dig into Ezra chapter 4. We have, we have much to do. Have you ever, or do you know the feeling of that when things seem to be going well, or things that seem to be going good, and you just get that feeling that, man, something's about to happen. Something's bound to happen. Something, something is about to take place. It's like too good to be true sort of things. Maybe we haven't felt that in too long. We've been discouraged. But have you ever felt that? And isn't it that isn't that just how life is that when we we kind of sense that since things are going well, something is about to happen? We hear now and we see on social media memes and people are saying is nothing surprises us anymore that it's 2020. And it certainly has been a rough year, and certainly continues to get worse. But bad things that happened to God's people did not start in 2020. Living in a fallen world, we experience and we see discouragements, we see opposition. Bad things. Creation is groaning. Another hurricane has hit this past week, and, and truthfully, it seems to not even be on major media news because of all the other things that are happening. A, a crazy storm hit Iowa just a couple weeks ago and devastated like a third of your crops. Fires again on the West Coast. Man repeatedly, over and over, showing not just their brokenness, but their deadness. And it's constantly on display. So no wonder then, when we sense and feel or have things going somewhat well, do we expect that something bad to happen? Life is constantly fraught with discouragement, with every turn and every news cycle. You know, we've been through three chapters so far in Ezra. And you know, everything in Israel at this point has gone pretty well. It's almost like a record for them. You know how at a, some workplaces they put a sign up on the in their workplace that says, this many days without injury. Well, they got three chapters without open disobedience and sin. Things are going pretty well. And it's been about a year now since Cyrus's decree. They leave Babylon with their families, with wealth and treasures that are given back to them by the king. They have a a very uneventful journey back to Jerusalem, which is a really good thing. Their leaders lead well. The people give and cooperatively fully to the task of rebuilding the temple at the beginning there. They gather as one man to restore the, the, the worship again in Jerusalem with God's people. They started sacrificing and holding feasts. They come up with a plan of how they're going to accomplish this project and to 
get these supplies rolling in. And who's going to do what and when and where? Building supplies are coming. Roles are assigned. And within six months, they accomplished setting the foundation. And it was a big deal. They celebrated. Chapter 3 was about that. They celebrated. And the worship and the singing, the corporate response that was so loud and shouts to be heard throughout the land. It was a big time. Certainly there were those who were disappointed. We talked about that last week about the foundation. It wasn't going to be anywhere near like Solomon's temple, but for three chapters now, things are going pretty good. The temple's being rebuilt. The foundation's set. Everything's good. Everything's good. Maybe too good. Something's bound to happen, right? Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshardan, king of Assyria. Who brought us here? But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of King Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see his holy inspired in their word for his glory certainly for our joy. Amen. All good things come to an end. Opposition comes their way, cloaked in friendly, peaceful attire. They extend an olive branch of, hey, we can help. We're on your team. We're on your side. And it was that opposition that Stop the work of the temple. The opposition wasn't the weather. It wasn't animals. It wasn't pestilence. But it was from people. The people of the Lord. Or the land, excuse me. And that opposite opposition flattens them. It flattens them in discouragement and fear. And here in chapter 4 of Ezra, there's a a transition that takes place in Ezra. And all the way into Nehemiah, where now we see God's people facing opposition. Opposition from the people of the land, and also the opposition from their own hearts. 
and the fear that they face and the discouragement that comes along with that opposition. Do you think then there is a lesson to be learned for us, to be gained from this? Do you think their reality, that there is a truth to be seen here in Ezra 4, 1 through 5? And it's a truth, it's a reality that flows throughout Scripture and should inform us as we walk the Christian life. Of course there is. Because opposition is real. Discouragement is real. And it has devastating effects. And as God's people, when we are faced with those things, what we need is the gospel. So here's the first reality and truth that hits us square in the face from this passage. And that we as God's people are living behind enemy lines. We are living behind enemy lines. Lines. No, no matter how good it seems, no matter how accepted we may be as a church in a city or a place or a town or a country, God's people and the kingdom of God is being built behind enemy lines. That is the reality of Israel. That they are now refugees, once now in their own land. That used to be their own land. Not anymore. God had removed them because of their constant disobedience and sin. Their disobedience to the word of God had moved them into captivity. And now that they've come out of captivity, they are now the outsiders. They are now the foreigners. And what's quite clear, what comes quite clear to them, is that they are in hostile territory. They've already experienced a little bit of fear. We saw earlier chapter 3 when they were rebuilding the temple, but they worshipped because of their fear. But they understood this group of people that come to them with such an olive branch were not their friends. Verse 1 calls them adversaries. Some of your translations might say enemies, and that's correct. Who were these enemies? Verse 2 says that, that they too were people who were once exiled, but yet brought back to this place, or, or resettled to this place, forcibly resettled by another king of the Syrians. So they've been there for a while, but they're not originally from there. This was a, a mixed group of people of Samaria. A mixture of people of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and Edom. We've heard of the Samaritans because of our studies in the New Testaments. And we know the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the Samaritans were a, a mixed group of foreigners from all different nationalities. And yet their identity was just Samaritans, with a mixture of some Israelites as well. And so with that, there was this mingling of religions. They brought together all that they had from the land to what they, what they knew, what they practiced together. They brought it all together, including a version of a worship 
to Yahweh. And so what's clear to them, or to Israel, when confronted with this offer of theirs, is that these Samaritans have no claim to being part of the people of God. Their religion was syncretistic. They mixed all together. And that religion is an abomination before God. And they had no motives in their requests. If they weren't no motives, then why did they treat them the way they did when they declined the offer? The leaders of Israel saw right through these people. They were enemies. You know, since Genesis chapter 3, we turn it a lot because it's a major point in Scripture. Since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall of man, there has been an opposition to God's people. There are those who are from the seed of the woman. Those are God's true people. Those are truly God's people. The faithful and the righteous. And then there are those who are the seed of the serpent. In short, the seed of the serpent are Satan's people. These are the wicked and the unrighteous that he uses as his instruments of opposition. Satan seeks to destroy whatever is good. He wrecks lives. He tries to rob God of his glory and our joy. Jokes on him. He portrays himself as a conquering king. He portrays himself as a friend and an angel of light. And he will do whatever it takes to usurp the glory of God. And these people, as many people are, are his men and women to destroy the kingdom. And are used to divide the hearts of God's people. They are pawns in a chess game of life with painful, deadly consequences. You know, Jesus warns us of this same reality about unbelievers. John 8:44. You are of your father the devil. These are people who are opposing Jesus. He says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what he is saying of those who are unbelievers opposing Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is also very clear on the position of where unbelievers are. He is a deceiver and a liar. And we have to understand that in our 21st century enlightened minds, the reality of evil behind the opposition that we face in this world. However, brothers and sisters, there's good news. That even though we live behind enemy lines, and though we have faced opposition 
And we will continue to face some opposition, or maybe we have it and it's coming. And maybe you face opposition from unbelievers. That there's evil, the evil one's fiery darts will keep coming from every direction to tempt the church and to be discouraged, even through olive branches that seem peaceful and good. They are used to discourage and tempt the church. But here's the good news. Satan is a defeated foe. He is defeated. He will never overcome what Christ has accomplished on the cross. He is defeated. And though even now, we still we live behind enemy lines. We cannot forget that. When God's kingdom looks small and weak, and that foe looks oh so strong, and he is experienced, and he is cunning, and it seems as if we are standing against insurmountable odds. But you know what? Our God loves those odds. He loves them. Do you remember what he told Israel when they were going against one of their foes back in the day? And he said, pick this many men. And they go out and they pick like 10,000 men. And they keep dwindling it down with these things. There's only like 300 dudes left that go against like 10,000. God's like, I like those odds right there. And you want to know why God likes those odds? Because he gives them God. Do not forget that one day his kingdom is coming. Do not forget who has gone before us. Do not forget who has conquered sin and death. Do not forget who has equipped you for every battle with his armor and with his sword. Do not forget that his kingdom is coming and that this light momentary affliction will seem as nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ is with us. He is with you if you are in Christ and, and he is with me. And as we live behind enemy lines, like God's people did in Ezra chapter 4, we learn how to live in this world, but not of it. To be separate, but to be wise. As Jesus told us from the get-go, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. This is certainly a sobering reminder from Jesus. Not to get comfortable, and to always be ready, to be strong in the strength of his might and not our own, putting on the whole armor of God, because this is how we stand against the schemes of opposition. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers of the prince of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, we live behind enemy lines. Secondly, I want you to see that to obey God's word 
is always the right answer to the questions that the world poses to us, no matter what the consequences may be. Verses 1 and 2 is the offer from the people of the land. But look it down at verse 3, and you see the answers that they gave back. In short, it's, no, thank you. So, they said, you, people of the land, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Why did they reject that offer? Why did, well, we already see all right, that they're enemies. Nothing can be good coming from our enemy. It still seemed like quite the generous offer. And the Jews, just blatant rejection to them seems to be sectarian. And with that, just kind of asking for trouble. But they knew who they were dealing with. They knew the motives of these people were selfish political, not for their good and not for the Lord's good. These people were idolaters. They were profane. They were not God's people. And even though they claimed to worship God like they did, offering sacrifices like the law required, as they said, and that they were familiar with their worship, it didn't matter. Harm could it have been to help them? You see, these are the kind of office offers that seem cordial and even ecumenical, inclusive. Let's bring in as many people as we can. Let's just get together and get along. You pray your way, I'll pray my way, and we'll all pray to the same place, right? What's the difference? To the world, the Jews' refusal looks to be intolerant and bigoted. But their answer was according to the word of God. You see, what they faced is something that's not new. It's not something that was invented in the 20th century. This is called pluralism. This is called pluralism. The Samaritans here claimed to worship the same God as the Jews, and they insisted on being included and to be equal among them. And essentially to the Jews, when asked this question, this is what they're hearing. You mean we have to abandon our theological orthodoxy and our uniqueness? And so when we are tempted to get into this pluralistic society... We're being asked the same thing, to forego our theological orthodoxy and our uniqueness that's called biblical Christianity, all in the name of being ecumenical and inclusive and tolerant. Many denominations and churches have walked down that road. Their goal is to mirror society and culture in every way. To look more like what the world says is popular than holiness. They cast out 
basic theological beliefs and have adopted sinfully abhorrent beliefs and practices before God. D.A. Carson makes the argument in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, that once you begin to believe that there are many ways to God, and that all of them are equally valid, that's pluralism, right? The many ways to God, you pray your way, I'll pray my way, it's all going the same way. Once you adopt that, then anything that is exclusive is then labeled as intolerant, bigoted, and therefore is completely inadmissible. You see, if the people of God in Ezra said yes, what do you think would have happened to them? This would have been fatal to them. As we are watching the slow death of liberal churches and denominations all around us, they would have languished into obscurity because they are tasteless and have no light. You see, brothers and sisters, we are to learn something here of the dangers that lie beneath the good intentions of generous offers from the world. There are wolves wearing sheep's clothing, and behind them is prowling a lion seeking those he may devour. If you're working through the truth of Christianity, maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're wondering if the Bible is, is really true. Let me give you a piece of advice. Do not try to determine what is true by what is popular. In 1971, Ford was coming out with a new car. I wasn't alive but they were coming out with a new car, and this car was to be revolutionary for the American automobile industry. It was the first American-made subcompact car. Toyota was coming in, Honda was coming in, and, and the American auto industry was getting handed to them. More ways than one. And then their cars couldn't compete. So Ford's coming, we're coming out with this new car, it's gonna be lighter, it's gonna be cheaper, it's gonna be efficient, and it's going to be American-made. You're going to be laughing at your cards. It's going to change the world. You know what the great call was? The Ford Pinto. <laughs> what a car. Did anybody have one? Of course, of course he did. <laughs> so in light of that, we are grateful that no one here in the your gas tank did not explode upon impact. That car was popular. It was going to be popular. It was touted to be popular and new. But what happened? Well, they don't make the Ford Pinto And they haven't for a long time. Popularity is not a good measure of what is true. I want my kids to hear that. Eva, Lottie, they're going to listen. Popularity is not a measure. In fact, if something is popular, more often than not, just go the other direction. Amen. You see, ever increasing in our culture, the gospel is not popular. It's not received, and it is not tolerated. In fact, to many, it's hate speech. It's hate speech to tell them about the substitutionary atonement of Christ and that this is the only way to be reconciled before a holy and just God. We're extending you out grace and mercy. That's hate speech. You hate me. 
You don't deserve to speak anymore. But the Apostle Paul has said, Has not God made the foolish, foolish, the wisdom of the world? For since, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25. We hold the truth, we hold the gospel. We hold the gospel not because it is popular. We hold the gospel because it is truth. And to us who are being saved, and are being saved, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, when you face persecution or opposition, when it becomes very clear that the only reason you have faced opposition is because you are a Christian, then hear these words and take courage. Choose holiness. Choose faithfulness. Choose to live according to God's word. In Ezra 4, they didn't go the way of what was popular. And yes, they did face persecution. They faced persecution. But this is what God's people have always faced in the light of fallen world. Because we live in enemy territory. And where we are now increasingly a secular world, we cannot be shocked that we are going to face opposition and persecution. The Apostle Paul told his disciple Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul wasn't paranoid. Or was he hypersensitive to what other people thought of him and what he believed? He faced legit and serious persecution, and he understood that this truth wasn't just from experience, but that truth was from Jesus himself. If they persecute me, Jesus said, they will also persecute you, John 15, 40. You might be thinking that I'm even a little paranoid. But if you were to ask Christians today in West Africa, in the Sudan, and in Nigeria, where in 2018 over 3,500 Christians were killed in Africa by Islamic militants, ask the thousands of Syrian Christian refugees who have been displaced, who have suffered death, torture, kidnapping, War, destruction and theft of property, and slavery from ISIS or ISIL. And this is not to mention the things that are happening in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, China, or Indonesia. Countless brothers and sisters, even in the 21st century, are facing unbelievable suffering and persecution and loss. You see, we may not face the same violence, 
In fact, what we may face may be more like the institutional opposition that the Israelites faced that day in chapter 4. Yet persecution and suffering is real. And it is ramping up more now in the United States than ever. How many have lost their businesses and reputations because they won't make a cake? Or they won't take pictures for so-called same-sex weddings? Without a doubt, now with COVID in some areas of the country, churches are being fined for gathering, for singing, and even in their cars meeting together, listening to the sermon on the radio together. I've heard John MacArthur of Grace Community Church answer the question, what do you say about evangelical churches and leaders who are criticizing you and your church for gathering? He said, it's not surprising to me. Because pragmatism has, such, has had such a huge impact on the church. For past decades now, the church is more concerned with what the world thinks of it, what's popular, than it does ministering to the saints. He goes on saying, if, if that is your goal, pragmatism, then you must go along with the views of the culture in every way. You see, we are not in friendly terms. And so we must not be surprised when we face opposition. Even in your neighborhoods, at your jobs, in your families, you will lose friends for following Christ. But we, the church of Jesus Christ, we are the pillar of truth. We must obey the word of God and be holy before our Heavenly Father. Before lost world. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, be assured that you are always doing the right thing. And when one, we stand courageously, but we stand courageously in humility. We don't stand in arrogance or pride and germs. We stand in Christ. We stand only because of grace only because of mercy. Because we have been saved by grace. And we want to enemies. You know, verse 4 and 5 shows us that even when you make the right decision, and you obey the word of God, that it's not a guarantee that it will always go well. Started up against them was this campaign, well organized and funded, with lobbyists and all to put into action institutional hostility for the Jews in such a way that it would be so hard for them that they could not rebuild the temple. Discouragement bred into fears that crippled them for years. In fact, it was about 15 years of rebuilding took place. Discouragement is a deadly virus. And it's one of the greatest strategies of the evil one. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, talks about that strategy very vividly. It says that that strategy is what hardly fails. Discouragement saps energy. It takes away joy. It cripples motivation. And discouragement turns 
God's people inward to themselves. To get frustrated. To get envious and fearful. Are you discouraged? Have you been discouraged by opposition? Does it seem with every step you take forward in the Christian life that you get knocked back through? Living behind enemy lines is real. And opposition is real. Discouragement is real. The pain of the discouragement is real. The stress of it is real. The temptation to give into it is real. The temptation to believe the lies that come our way when we are discouraged are real. And boy, are they tempting. Boy, are they tempting. We must be equipped, then, brothers and sisters, in how to deal with discouragement. And we do that with the gospel. We First, we must understand that the Christian life, the ministry, discipleship, church life, it will be filled with disappointments, trials, difficulties, and opposition. However, God is sovereign. He uses them to bring about his, about steadfast faith and joy. It's James chapter 1. And I know that that doesn't sound helpful or hopeful, but it is certainly a constant theme throughout Scripture. That was what was meant for evil, God has used using it for our good. And Ezra 4 is just one small example of many in the scriptures. And so knowing this truth, then should, should bolster us to be ready, to be prepared, to be suited up, ready, because the enemy is going to come. He is going to come us against us. He's going to come against you. Things are getting real in this world. And if we just keep sitting back and think that we are in peace, then when it hits you, you are not going to be equipped to stand tall. Yeah. We gather, we read, we study the scriptures, we sing, we work, we live lives upright before the, before the Lord and the world, but we do this uh, armor. We must be courageous and brave with the sword of the Spirit, wielding it wisely, so that when that evil day comes, we're not only giving the right answers, but we are standing tall when opposition is coming our way. Conflict, opposition, struggle, temptation, fear, brothers and sisters, is our calling. But ours is Christ and his promises that if we are in him, we will persevere. Amen. And as we have sung together in the past, when trials come, no longer fear. For in the pain, our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold. And there is where his faithfulness is told. Second, in the midst of discouragement, we must keep our eyes on the Lord. Israel made the right decision, but they allowed themselves to fall victim to discouragement by taking their eyes off the Lord. And they became paralyzed with fear. 
Isn't that what discouragement does? It breeds fear, and that fear becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and so big where we can't even see that the Lord is bigger, and that he is even near to us. You remember when Peter was called out of the boat and into the raging sea? To walk on water, because here's Jesus walking on water toward them. And he does so with such triumphs and victory. And yet as he takes his eyes off the Lord, he began to see the raging sea. And what? Fear. He discouraged. And he began to sink. If you are sinking this morning, then reach out to the hand of Christ. As with Peter, he will pull you up. Discouragement is real, and it is painful, and it tempts us to look away. But let's keep our eyes on Christ. And when discouragement comes, when opposition comes, that is when we lean in more. We press in more. When it is pressing against you, you press in more. Third, we must exercise faith. Faith is what keeps us going when everything around us, and everyone around us, tells us to stop. Faith will keep us hanging on to the Lord despite being pierced with the arrows of opposition and the ensuing pain of discouragement. You see, faith takes hold that even despite the reality of opposition and discouragement, the struggle and the pain of discouragement, and faith puts us right before the Lord. And it weighs out for us over and over again. He is working. He is stronger. He is mightier and greater and more glorious than any enemy, lie, or failure. And again, do you remember singing this? And though this world the devil's fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail. I close with this story. During World War II, ah, the men are beating up now, right? In 1944, the Allied advance through Europe had come to a standstill as winter began to set on. The American forces and the Allied forces were coming together. What was going to be the next advance to get across the Rhine into Germany? Market Garden was a bust. It's time to regroup and figure out what's going on. And with the German army still, still holding on, they made its way to break through the Allied lines, knowing that this would be their last-ditch effort campaign to win the war. On December 16th, the German, the German army attacked the American lines, and we didn't even see it coming. Winter had set in. Reconnaissance airplanes could not fly. We didn't see it coming. The Germans had thousands of American soldiers cut off and surrounded. This was the Battle of the Bulge in 
best on. For weeks, these men, and even some civilians, were suffered. They suffered artillery barrages day and night, day and night, day and night, by the Germans to destroy all their forces and every bit of morale that they had. It was a horrific situation. They were running out of ammo, food, medical supplies. Proper winter clothes was an absolute short supply. It was a bad situation. Nothing could get in, and nothing could get out. They were completely cut off. They couldn't receive airdrops. And when they did, the Allied airdrops didn't know where to put it because the lines were so mixed. And on December 22nd, the German commander of the army, the attacking army, ordered a ceasefire. They sent the letter to the American commander, General Anthony McLuffney of the 101st Airborne Division. And he respectfully asked them to surrender. You can't win. You're surrounded. You're cut off. Save your men. And surrender. General McLuffey simply replied that to the German, to the German commander. Nuts! Now we know what that means. Brothers and sisters, we are to be faithful. We are to be obeying the word, even though we are outnumbered, even though we are outgunned, even though we are battered and beaten and outsupplied, and we see brothers and sisters struggling all over the world. And we may seem smaller and weak. We stay strong, and we never surrender, and we never give in to the discouragement as if it is hopeless and as all is lost. Nuts! It's not. It's one. Christ is victorious. We are the only those in all of history that we get to still fight the battle knowing that the war has already been won. So we pray, pray that we would persevere, pray for one another, pray for all of the churches in our area, in our country, in our world that are facing unbelievable amounts of persecution. Stay educated on the situations. Listen to the podcast by Dr. Moeller. Oh my gosh, it's so good. You need to take a break, folks. It can't be discouraging that time. But take a break. Oh, it's so good. Brothers and sisters, let's always be humble. Our boast is Christ and the cross. Not strength, not might. That will come when he comes. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your word. Father, we are encountered again by the truth and the reality of living in a fallen world behind enemy lines. But the strength of our battle is not us. The strength of our battle is not even in each other, but the strength of our battle is Christ. And so we go forth with his sword, with the shield, Oh,
Guard us in these days. Lead us not into temptation, into discouragement, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom of